Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Happy 200th birthday to Walt Whitman, journalist, poet, lover, wanderer, and Brooklynite. Whitman grew up here in Brooklyn. He played here, he worked here, and most importantly, he walked its streets, taking inspiration from the places, views, and people he encountered. On this episode, we'll explore Brooklyn through Walt Whitman's eyes. If you look at the long span of cultural or literary history in Brooklyn, I think there would be little argument to the fact that Whitman is really a like a forefather of the artistic queer experience here in Brooklyn. And particularly in his kind of relationship to the waterfront, his relationship to the built environment. With these entries, we get to begin building a map of Brooklyn according to Whitman's own wanderings or his own activity. And when we plot these points on a map, we begin to see certain things surface about Walt Whitman embodying the city in this way. Poetry, and I get like the love or the service of poetry uh, is like the tool that I have to try to understand myself and my, my environment. So I'm always gonna look at Brooklyn knowing that June Jordan walked these streets first, that she wrote about Walt Whitman walking these streets first, knowing that Tesla laid down like copper wires out here for Con Ed, like people that not only influenced me and like made me feel good to be a human, like they still influence everybody around us. For this episode, we sat down with Joanne Freeman from Backstory Radio to discuss Whitman, his impact on Brooklyn, and Brooklyn's impact on him. New York has always been the literary capital of America, but in the 1840s, Walt Whitman made the then city of Brooklyn his stamping ground, and pretty much the place where he developed his writing and his identity. Historians at the Brooklyn Historical Society and co-hosts of the podcast Flatbush and Maine, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia, tell me how Whitman was formed by his experiences growing up in Brooklyn. I started by asking Zahir what Whitman was doing before he published his epic poem, Leaves of Grass. He founded a newspaper called The Long Islander, and that lasted for less than a year. And then he had a few more jobs. And then in 1841, had his first writing job as a journalist that he could actually make a living off of. And that was writing for the New World newspaper. So during this period, he's kind of, you know, moving around. He's trying to find himself. But by by the early 1840s, he really has settled into the idea that he could make a living living as a writer, as a journalist. And that would lead, of course, to him becoming the editor of the Brooklyn Eagle in 1846. He'd often take breaks during the day and walk down to Fulton Ferry Landing and his kind of daily routine. He would write in the morning, take a break, walk down to Fulton Ferry Landing, come back, review the drafts. At the end of the workday, he'd go down to 
gray swimming bath, again, also on the waterfront. So this was like his work was very integrated into his actually kind of physical moving throughout the city. In 1848, Whitman lost his job at the Brooklyn Eagle, but it's not exactly clear what happened. There are some people who argue that Whitman was just too radical, too egalitarian, too anti-slavery in a period in which people were really starting to choose sides. But there are other people actually who argue that his problem wasn't that he was too radical, it was that he wasn't political enough. Hmm. And in the Eagle during his, his tenure there, you really do see him kind of trying to split the baby down the middle a little bit. I mean, this was part of the idea of putting in more cultural content. He wanted to tamp down the sectional politics and actually make this something that was palatable for all. And it actually ended up being kind of divisive for all. Yeah. And I think even the coverage of the hard news that he did covering a lot of like the experience of workers and labor strikes, this is also a period of increasing nativism. And so his focusing Mm. on these plight of immigrants and workers also put him at odds with the growing anti-immigrant sentiment at the time. And yet he wouldn't come down hard on the side of laborers either. That's right. There's this sort of famous labor strike in 1846 at the Atlantic Docks, which is a newly opened warehousing facility that essentially pitted Irish workers against newly arrived German workers. And Whitman writes about the strike with real sympathy for the workers. But at the end of the article comes down very clearly and says that labor unions are a problem. They are Hmm. bad for the economy, and he wholly sort of denounces them. And so even that is a perfect example of how he's kind of trying to please both and ends up pleasing no one. If in his political views, as expressed in the Brooklyn Eagle, Whitman was pretty much trying to nod to both sides of the political divide, so the man identified today as a great gay pioneer was deliberately ambiguous about his sexuality. I think Whitman himself, he was interviewed near the time of his death and refused to admit the sexual connotations and certainly the homosexual connotations of of his poetry, especially Calamus, which was probably the more explicit. But this is not unusual, right? If you follow the work of people like George Chauncey, who talks about the 19th century experiences of, of men who had sexual relations with other men, you know, there isn't necessarily a label that they identify with. Many of them had a kind of fluidity to their sexuality that didn't lock them into a particular identity the way that I think maybe it would in our contemporary way of talking about it. That doesn't mean that it's clear that Whitman's work was written and it was published at a time and it was being read. And so there there were people who were reading or consuming this material and for whom there was resonance. And so I think the challenge for us as historians is how do we surface that without forcing people into categories that maybe weren't as solidified uh, then as they are or have been now. Right. And in a sense, I mean, in Whitman's case, you might say that it's the lack of category that really gives it meaning, right? That it's that fluidity that kind of defines him. 
I think he'd love that because he loved the water. And he wrote about the East River and ferries and that kind of liminal space of the East River between these two cities with passion and eroticism. He definitely had a thing for transportation. Yes. <laughs> he definitely had a thing fetish, for movement. <laughs> yeah, almost a fetish. He definitely liked moving from one space <laughs> to the next. And so that could almost be a perfect um, kind of embodiment of how he thought hmm. about his movement uh, in, in terms of his sexuality. It was not an easy life, right? And it was not a simple life. And there was threat of danger. There was a threat of rejection. But nonetheless, he interwove this, this experience into the fabric of all aspects of his life. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that frustration and repression being expressed in his poetry. And certainly mm. the relationship he had with Fred Vaughn bears this out. I think Whitman has kind of ghosted Fred because he's like, I'm not hearing from you. <laughs> um, but it's this relationship with Fred that many people credit with the material that comes out in Calamus. And, and then eventually Fred gets married and invites Whitman to his wedding. It's just like, I haven't invited anyone, but I want you there. And Whitman doesn't go. I think in a subsequent relationship, Whitman writes a note to himself, like, remember Fred Vaughn. Like, this inability to be public about your relationships, but also this inability to be public about your heartbreak, right? By night, he strolled along the waterfront looking for sexual partners. Whitman, as we've talked about, loved the built environment, the landscape of Brooklyn. And he spent a lot of time on his feet, um, as the here described, both day and night, um, basically walking around was part of his work process, but he also spent a lot of time in the evenings walking along the waterfront. And we know this in part because he kept journals um, that were read a lot like commonplace books, describing where he was, where he walked, from the street, the blocks that he went on, the parts of the waterfront he went to, and also who he met along the way. And so he described many of the men that he interacted with, sometimes in very sort of chaste or cursory terms, and sometimes in terms that were more descriptive and that at least reading briefly between the lines indicate some kind of romantic or sexual tryst. In his journals, he would record things like, Gus White, 25, at ferry with skeleton boat, five foot nine, round, well-built. David Wilson, night of October 11th, 62, walking up from Middaw, slept with me, works in a blacksmith shop in Navy Yard. In some ways, if you, if you come to Brooklyn and you walk around in Brooklyn Heights and then down to the waterfront, you'll be struck at first by a real geographical barrier. The, Brooklyn Heights is built on a bluff. And the waterfront, the kind of working class, bawdier area of the waterfront is really separate from that. It's down by the water, right? And so you have this kind of symbolic, but really f truly experienced boundary between the genteel suburban neighborhood of the Heights and the waterfront, the working waterfront, which would have been teeming night and day, but also would have provided spaces, darkness, you know, lots of tunnels and bridges and um, parts of the growing waterfront that would have given people cover to experiment. Is there a legacy, a broader legacy for his writing and looking at Brooklyn as a queer space in some way? I mean, what is that legacy? If you look at the long span of cultural or literary history in Brooklyn, I think there would be little argument to the fact that Whitman is really a like a forefather of 
the artistic queer experience here in Brooklyn, and particularly mm. in his kind of relationship to the waterfront, his relationship to the built environment. I can think of so many people who draw on that precedent. Hart Crane in the early 20th century, living not far from where Whitman himself walked day after day, night after night with his lover and writing about the Brooklyn Bridge with the kind of passion that Walt Whitman himself wrote about the ferry and the East hmm. River. I think about Carson McCullers and some of the other people who lived in a house called February House in the 1940s, many of which were queer, who drew on Whitman's sort of veiled homosocial style to tell a story that is all about the queer experience, even as a straight person might read it and not even see that queer experience hmm. in the hmm. book. So he set such precedence for people to take an inspiration, a really complex inspiration from the landscape of Brooklyn to create their own art. You can find the rest of Backstory's Walt Whitman episode on BackstoryRadio.org. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. Part of going into the archives is figuring out what materials an institution like ours has and also figuring out what an institution like ours doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And so our preparation for this segment began with us doing deep dive searches of all of our catalogs and finding that we have very little material here at Brooklyn Historical Society about Walt Whitman. So no archives. We have a few editions of Leaves of Grass, um, not a lot of photographs. And so we had to get creative with this segment. So that took us to the Library of Congress. Not physically, of course, oh, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And the Library of Congress has a collection of about 3,000 items, different kinds of formats, documenting Walt Whitman's life. And Whitman kept about 100 notebooks throughout his life. The Library of Congress describes these notebooks as uh, some are basically commercial notebooks in which he wrote with any implement at hand and which he amended at will by cutting out and replacing pages and pastings in clippings, photographs, or scraps of manuscripts. This is very much like commonplacing, which we've talked about in earlier episodes of the time where people just like kept things, scrapbooking, journaling, note-taking, all mixed up into these notebooks. And these notebooks include diary entries, drafts, literary notes, names, addresses, sketches, drawings, and trial titles. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I love about these kinds of notebooks books is that they defy format, right? They're everything. Mm -hmm. They're like a hodgepodge or like a, a, a messy closet in, in the best way possible. Um, and I think what's so great about this is you can see like near final drafts of poetry in these notebooks alongside Whitman's musings of the day and included in his musings of his life were some of the places that he went and the people that he saw. It doesn't take too much reading between the lines to see that that in certain places in these notebooks, Whitman is uh, telling us the men that he met on the streets of Brooklyn and whom he likely had physical or romantic relationships with. 
Here are just a few examples of things that we find in different notebooks. John McNelly, night, October 7, young man, drunk, walked up Fulton and High Street, home, works in Brooklyn, flour mills, had been with some friends, returned from war. Here's a different night. David Wilson, night of October 11, 62, walking up from Middaw, slept with me, works in a blacksmith shop at Navy Yard, lives in Hampton Street. Walks together Sunday afternoon and night is about 19. And here's another. John Elverson, young man on Fulton Ferry, tall, sandy, July 72. March 16, 69, William J. Murray works in machine shop at the Navy Yard. Monday, Tuesday, and Friday evening engaged. So what's really interesting, well, a lot of things interesting about these entries, but uh, to get a little bit of meta and pull back uh, before we get into the specifics of the content is thinking about what Whitman intended for this information in terms of its use, in terms of the audience and um, why he was recording this. Yeah, to me, these documents really get at this very interesting tension that exists in the archive between what is public and what is private. And as you say, the intention of use for something, you know, notebooks, diaries, you know, especially the connotations that they hold in the 20 and 21st century are among the most personal things that you can think of. And yet these are in the foremost public library of our country at the Library of Congress, something that is just there for researchers to come and plumb and get more and more information. And I think it really is almost a vexing question. What did Whitman intend by recording? recording these pretty obvious trysts in his notebooks. And lest people think we are belaboring this too much, let's keep in mind that Whitman was very well aware of what a public audience was. He was a journalist. He was a writer, published writer. If there was something that he wanted a widely read audience to have access to, he knew where to put it. And so his decision to put this in this format in a diary suggests a different kind of purpose. And the reason why I think this is important when people come to an archive is to think about the format of the information they're examining is because we sometimes assume or we might make the mistake of thinking about all archival sources as the same, right? There are certain kinds of sources that are intentionally for an archive, like their government documents and, you know, again, published works. You know, like people have a sense that this is for posterity Mm -hmm. or this is for record keeping Mm -hmm. or this is for future legal precedent or whatever. And then there are these kinds of documents, these personal documents. What are we doing? I don't want to say, are we violating... it's an it's, interesting but question. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think it's it's always, uh, I think, a little tricky, right? Again, and even to be mindful that notions of privacy have not been consistent throughout time, they right? Have their like own we, history. Yeah, like we have a diminishing sense of privacy in the last 40, 50 years. You know, I'm struck, as you say, also by even things like letters, which we think of as so personal, are an exchange between two people. Yeah. And a diary is so solitary. It's so self-focused, you know, 
I think we keep dancing around the question of why. And I think in some ways that is a really like psychological question that I yeah. don't know that we can necessarily yeah, get to the bottom I, to. But I, yeah. we can say, I think, that there is enormous significance in his need to record these and to take down specific details about them, to be able to recall places, to be able to recall ages, the looks, the different times they would meet and walk. That was clearly something of significance to Whitman. You know, and I think anyone who takes a selfie can understand why one wants to document themselves. Um, Certainly th- today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and because I think that for Whitman, what he was writing was for a public of one, and it's okay, right? Like, he wanted to remember this. Yes. Like, before we get to the question of whether we get to right. be part of that recollection right. of the past, like, he wanted to remember. Maybe these memories that he associated with each of these entries brought different kinds of joy or emotion right. or reference points. Yep. I mean, like, there was a historical value to him right. to record this information. So I think, well, whether or not the greater public of his time would have been ready to see this, right? This is Whitman privately saying, I did this with so-and-so for himself, you know? And I think anyone who, like, changes their relationship status on (laughs) on social media understands why they do that. And they're doing, of course, for a broader public, but it always starts with yourself. So I think, you know, with that, as historians, of course, and keeping in mind the work of people like Hugh Ryan— It's incredibly valuable that Whitman, at least for himself, saw enough. You know, this is what we have a record of. I don't know all of the people. We don't know that there were others that maybe he was like, I'm not going to write you down. Right. (laughs) You weren't that great. (laughs) (laughs) This is like the (laughs) A-team. No, I mean, first of all, there's an inherent value for us opportunistic historians in the fact that we have this evidence of queer experiences in the 19th century, because as we've talked about, those are rare. You know, I think we also see other layers of importance. And what I'm really drawn to is the places that he mentions, because it allows us to begin to piece together a sort of culturally tinged built environment in which he lived here in Brooklyn to think about where he went, not only why those people, but why those places, why he recorded those specific places and what his everyday life day or night might have been walking around and wandering around these places in Brooklyn. I so love this, you know, the spatial turn, because this whole idea that history takes place, like literally takes place. And with these entries, we get to begin building a map of Brooklyn according to Whitman's own wanderings or his own activity. And when we plot these points on a map, we begin to see certain things surface about proximity, about centrality, about mobility, about concentration. And we see certain trends and certain themes that are prominent in thinking about Walt Whitman embodying the city in this way. I'm struck by three locations that he mentions. The Fulton Ferry, first of all, he met one of these men on the Fulton Ferry. And then he mentions Mid-Off Street. And then he mentions the corner of High Street and Fulton Street, which everybody can, I'm sure you're listening to this, on your phone, take out your Google Maps and go into Brooklyn. And you'll see that this makes a rather neat little triangle that really encompasses only a few blocks in the area that really was the heart of Brooklyn in the mid-19th century. And the interesting thing is when you plot some of the points, additional layers of 
Walt Whitman's activities, especially in his early life. You see, for example, in 1831, when he was about 12 years old, he worked at the Long Island Patriot, which was at 149 Old Fulton Street. And then a little bit up the street at 30 Old Fulton Street, about 15 years later was where the Broken Eagle was, which was his paper. And then a few months later at 110 Orange Street was the Brooklyn Weekly Freeman. And so the earliest dates that we have of him making notations of these meetings he had with men happened significantly later than these years. But what layering this map helps us understand is that this notion of frequency and the notion of safety, like he was not venturing far beyond the places that he knew, right? Like there is a sense that this is, we would say, his stomping ground, right? Yeah. There is a comfort here. And one senses that for his activities, that comfort is very much a necessary element. But the other thing that's interesting is that not too far away at 98 Cranberry Street is where the first edition of Leaves of Grass was printed. And so there's a lot of printing going. <laughs> there's a lot of printing yeah. here. There's a concentration of newspapers. So, Julie, what was going on in Brooklyn? Why were these things so concentrated here? This particular area of kind of northern Brooklyn Heights on the edge of what we would now know as the Fulton Ferry District in Dumbo was a really interesting kind of transitional space between a wealthier, more residential neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights, which is where we are located right now, a Brooklyn Historical Society, where you would have had brownstones and in some cases mansions. You would have had stately organizations like the Long Island Historical Society and, you know, the Brooklyn Academy of Arts and Sciences and other institutions. But as you move kind of north from there, we begin to see actually the land go literally downhill, right, as we move toward the waterfront. And everything kind of comes together and converges at Fulton Ferry, which is the end of Old Fulton Street, which is the street that Zahir, you have been mentioning over and over and over again. So Whitman, his triangle it leads him kind of in a winding way through these old 19th century houses, but then to a much more commercial area, an area where you see at, you are exactly right, an emerging printing field sort of setting up shop on this stretch. There were tons of newspapers operating at that time. This is also where burgeoning photography, commercial photography industry would begin to emerge in the 1860s and 1870s, the very time that Whitman is cruising around this area. Um, you also see things like public baths going up. And so one of the places that Whitman spent a lot of time at the end of Fulton Street was Gray's Bath. He talked about going there for a swim on hot days with one of his uh, one of the printer's devils at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And then, of course, baths have these kind of homosocial connotations there as well. If you had walked along that stretch of Fulton Street in the late 19th century, it would have been lined with oyster carts selling quick, inexpensive food to the working class people living along there. So I think you get a sense of these like two worlds that Whitman lived in that were sort of spatially meeting at this center, at this spine of Old Fulton Street was this sort of more genteel Brooklyn Heights and then this more commercial waterfront.
In this Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to an excerpt from an oral history with Suhair Hamad from the Muslims in Brooklyn Oral Histories Collection. Suhair Hamad was born in 1973 in Amman, Jordan. Her family immigrated to the United States in 1979 and settled in the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. She started writing poetry as a teenager, often drawing from her family's history and her own experiences as a Palestinian Muslim woman in New York City. Her poetry collections include Born Palestinian, Born Black, Drops of This Story, Zatar Diva, and Breaking Poems. She, I think, first gained notoriety for many of us when she was a featured regular on HBO's Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry, and she appeared in the Tony Award-winning Broadway play Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway. Her work has also been featured in various anthologies, magazines, plays, and films. The streets, the few streets I walked to from my apartment to school was just like, you know, a 1980s science fiction surreal video of what you think hip-hop is. Everything from the cardboard on the streets. You know, now it's like at near 45, the same conversation I've been having for 20 years, like this is how I grew up. Uh, I can I can sense uh, I can sense sentimentality in my tone, but I want to challenge that in myself because all of these tropes of hip hop or of urbanity of ultimately what is an extension of the black experience in this country for all the language we use around it. Like, where did you wind up around whom? Who did you serve and who served you? All those kinds of nuanced like realities are flattened, just like that cardboard box, right? So I think there's something to be said for Brooklyn brevity. There's something to be said for sitting back and watching what happens and being comfortable and sure on your corner, you know, uh, like that your back is taken care of. And I think the sense that somebody got your back allows the imagination to feel just a little more secure. I don't know if, it's, if security is what every imagination needs, but I think it, every imagination might need it at some point. Mm -hmm. So the streets were like what they were. And then my parents in their home, uh, very proprietorial over honor and virginity and an authenticity that the world itself refused to give them as refugees and as specifically Palestinians because what it meant to acknowledge their displacement, the cost of that uh, to authority. So you have like a holy scripture, which really, pro uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, intimidatingly is said to be perfect. <laughs> In a language I would love to love, but is still removed from me, right? And so I, I, I felt what one would call this creation, this life force, this God. If God was in language, it was given to me through hip hop and through the Quran. And 
poetry and I get I, like the love or the service of poetry uh, is like the tool that I have to try to understand myself and my my environment so I'm always going to look at Brooklyn knowing that June Jordan walked these streets first that she wrote about Walt Whitman walking these streets first knowing that Tesla laid down like copper wires out here for Con Ed like people that not only influenced me and like made me feel good to be a human like they still influence everybody around us and they don't even know like they don't know June Jordan walked these streets and, and uh, the fact that I know it is like a, a birthright even though I wasn't born here is that birthright that like once once you've rooted yourself the fruits are not commodifiable for some of us but we harvest them so I think before we get into the content itself, I wanted to kind of provide a little bit of context for this interview. I happen to be the one to conduct this oral history interview. And in setting up this interview, Sahar was insistent that it be outside in the city. She did not want an in-studio interview. She did not want an indoor interview. And I think what's interesting is there's this part where she's talking and she pauses so that a truck can go yes. by. That was a very intentional thing for her. And I think at first I was a little apprehensive about doing an interview outside because of all of that extant noise. But then reflecting back, I, I see what she was prompting and pushing me to do was to take a complete oral history where the city was a kind of narrator in this story. Because it's very much for her to kind of in-place Brooklyn in her story is necessary to do it not just in word, but audibly. Well, when you listen to her interview, it sounds like verse. And I think a lot of the reason behind that is because of the soundtrack, if you will, of the interview. I mean, I think listening to this, I wonder if anybody would question whether Zuhair is like clearly part of the lineage that, you know, maybe doesn't begin with Walt Whitman, but of which he's certainly a forefather. I mean, there is an epicness to the story that she tells as well as an intimacy, right? Yeah. There's a movement to it. It is so rooted in place. It is rooted in the notion of movement um, and um, and of being, but also of moving around this yeah. area constantly. I mean, even freedom, right? Like this, yes. the freedom that is found in movement, but also the freedom that is found in verse, right? Because there are what seem to be asides, but if you kind of let it go, yeah. she brings it back, yeah. right? And so one of the things that we frequently talk about with oral history is that oral history allows people to present themselves and their stories in a nonlinear way, right. which is how many people, most people live in a nonlinear fashion. I think what we try to do oftentimes in interpreting is to figure out what kind of structure we can impose on a narrative to help make it more accessible. Well, what's interesting is that she imposed her own yes, narrative on yes. this. It just happens to be a nonlinear one because it's a longer clip, but it takes you where it needs to go. And you needed to stop at all those stops to get to the last stop, if that makes sense. Like you needed to stop and be equipped with the things that she teaches you throughout the clip to make it to the end. And I think for me, one of the big themes that I was struck by, which we've been talking about throughout the episode, is this tension between public-private, and she's really reflective about this, the idea that she is pulling from two spaces that are both physical spaces and emotional spaces. Um, one is her home, 
that is the Quran. That is her linguistic origin there. And another is the street. And that verse is hip hop, right? And that these two things can come together, can coalesce for her and are really the crux of who she is as a poet. And I found that so meaningful and actually, you know, not to knock Whitman, but there's a like a self-reflectiveness and an honesty to it that I found maybe more refreshing than the bard himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Because there's this, um, I think she's, I think, I don't know if the word she uses is intimidating, but she said this thing that's supposed to be perfect yeah. and how am I supposed to yes. arrival that, right? So there is a, a kind of humility there. And, well, and that's Whitman. Yeah. I have to say that is one of the great values of Whitman is his reveling in the messy and in the imperfect and in the dirty and yes. smelly yes. and, and yes. beautiful, right? That all those yes. Things can be those yes. things and be beautiful. And I think, I don't know, you know, whether Suhair meant to like specifically reference that notion of perfection or imperfection. But when she said it, I immediately said, you know, this is Whitman, you know, looking at, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like horse poop on right. the streets and people yelling <laughs> right, at each other right, and crowding right. onto the ferry and the or spray trash in the truck space. backing up in the course of the oral history interview, That's right? right? Exactly. Yeah. And he's saying, this is it. This That's is right. not, I don't love despite this. I love because this. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, we talked about this like map of Walt Whitman wandering. And I, I get this like Suhair is taking us on this journey, picking things up along the way. Right. And clearly tying it into this lineage through June Jordan. Like it isn't just like Whitman. It's yes. like June Jordan walked and Whitman walked. Important. And now Suhair Hamad walks. As always, we've got some terrific events coming up here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Zaheer, what are you staying late to check out at our public programs? One of the events that I'm excited about is called The Tea on Brooklyn's Prismatic LGBTQ Nightlife. For decades, Brooklyn has served as a locus for LGBTQ nightlife. And in honor of that history and significant role, we will have a program that will feature clips from We Came to Sweat, the documentary on the storied Starlight Lounge that served as a black queer hub in Crown Heights, and a panel discussion featuring Calvin Clark of the former club Langston, curator, writer, and social activist Kimberly Drew, Mohamed Fayez of the queer People of Color Dance Party Collective Poppy Juice, and Ryan Holmes of the collective Brooklyn Boyhood. This program will be Monday, June 24th. Doors open at 6. Event begins at 6.30 p.m. Admission is $10 for non-members and $5 for members. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about this is that the Starlight Lounge's story is one of the stories that is told in our Voices of Crown Heights Oral Histories uh, collection that I was part in in directing. And Mohamed Fayez is a narrator who tells a little bit of the story of Poppy Juice in the Muslims in Brooklyn collection. So I'm excited to see the ways that our oral histories kind of speak to this program. That is a lineup. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So, Julie, what are you interested in checking out? So, two nights later, on Wednesday, June 26th, I will be attending Getting the History of HIV AIDS Right. This is an event I've been super excited for because the speaker, Jennifer Breyer, who is a historian at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of Infectious Ideas, U.S. Political Response to the AIDS Crisis, has been an unbelievable advisor on our most recent exhibition, Taking Care of Brooklyn, Stories of Sickness and Health. Um, we'll 
we'll talk a little bit more about that um, that exhibition on the next episode. But she'll be speaking with Northwestern University professor and journalist Stephen Thrasher, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Esquire. And they're going to have a really interesting discussion about ways in which the public has misunderstood and misrepresented the AIDS crisis in American history, and some of the ways that we can begin to dismantle those myths. So this is Wednesday, June 26th. The event is at 6.30 p.m. It's $10 general admission, five for members, which of course you all are. Zahir and I will link to these on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to Joanne Freeman, Adam Shapiro, and the team at Backstory Radio. To hear their Whitman episode and learn more, visit backstoryradio.org. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim D'Aquino, and our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 